Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Welcome to today's Beeson Podcast. We got to hear a sermon today. It's a sermon preached by Justin Knowles, who was a graduate of Beeson Divinity School several years ago and currently serves on the ministry staff of Ingleside Baptist Church in Macon, Georgia. That's a great church. I had the privilege of preaching there several years ago. The pastor actually is a former student of mine at another school, Dr. Timothy McCoy. And we have another Beeson graduate also on staff over there at Ingleside. That's Blake Jenkins. We want to give a call out to this church. It's a great church. And Justin is a wonderful minister of the gospel. We're going to get to hear a sermon he actually preached here at Beeson Divinity School during his senior year as he was ready to graduate. He went on from Beeson to Duke Divinity School, where he received a THM in theology. He's now completing a Ph.D. in theology from Spurgeon's College in Great Britain. We're going to hear a sermon titled, Between Two Resurrections. Dr. Smith, tell us about it. This sermon by Justin Knowles is taken from 1 Corinthians 15, 12 through 34. He exegetically covers his passage in the allotted time, without necessarily visiting every verse fully. His thesis is very interesting and very biblical. By the power of the Spirit, we can live resurrected lives in the present while we await our future resurrection. He uses modern and contemporary stories as servants of the biblical text instead of forcing the biblical text to serve as a servant to modern contemporary stories. The introduction is engaging, Dean George, very purposeful. He recalls a time through his cross-cultural immersion experience as a Beast of Divinity School student in a London nursing home where the question was asked to one of the residents, uh, what is going to happen to you when you die? And the man says, I'll be buried and that will be it. Well, Justin is going to take the man's answer and the question posed to him and answer it throughout the sermon by allowing the text to address it. He uses the Corinthian church situation. The whole idea that if Christ is not raised, then we will not be raised. But if Christ is raised and he is, then we will be raised. Paul's voice, the voice of Paul stating that Christ is raised and appeared to Cephas, the 500, and had appeared to Paul himself. The Reformation, Luther's uh, 14-year-old daughter, who was being sealed in a coffin, and Luther said, you may put her in the coffin and put the nails there, but she's going to rise again. Contemporarily speaking, he brings up A.W. Tozier's funeral and Jim Elliott's wonderful quote, that he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. C.S. Lewis, so his own personal history. He uses all of these illustrative gems to buttress and strengthen the idea, the truth, that since Christ rose from the dead, we will also rise. It's very practical that Christians live differently in light of the authenticity of the resurrection. So he gives illustrations that speak to Beast of the Divinity School students in terms of how we ought to live ethically because of this theological truth. In a conclusive way, he comes all the way to the end and shows us that one day 
when we stand before God, he will have already caused death to die. Death will lose its sting. The grave will lose its victory, and we will be in the presence of God forever. Let's go to Hodges Chapel. The year is 2008. The preacher is Justin Knowles, his sermon, Between Two Resurrections. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians 15, as we've already read. If you want to go ahead and turn back there. Starting in verse 12. Last summer, I had the opportunity to go with a group from Beeson over to London. And one of my favorite things that I did while we were there was I got to go with a missionary to different nursing homes and just visit with people. And we went into this one place and sat down at a table with an older gentleman. And uh, the missionary carried on a conversation for a little while with him. And a few minutes into it, he said, Sir, what do you think is going to happen to you when you die? The man said, Well, when I die, that's it. They're going to bury me, and it's over. The missionary said, Really? That's it? He goes, Yeah, that's it. It's over. I was really interested to see how the missionary would handle that because I guess I knew people believed that, but I never had a conversation with somebody that did. And the way he handled it was by looking at me and saying, Justin, what do you think about that? <laughs> and I suddenly became very appreciative of theology too with Dr. Humphreys. And I started an answer something along the lines of, well, I believe it at some point. God will actually raise us up from the dead. And as soon as those words came out of my mouth, I realized how weird that sounds. But I believe it's true. But I didn't make it any farther than that before the man just cut me off and said, no, that's it. When you die, they bury you. It's over. I said, okay. Not too long ago, I was doing some reading for one of Dr. Dorset's classes on A.W. Tozer. And at his funeral, one of his daughters stood up and said, I can't be sad today. Because I know daddy's happy. Because he lived his whole life for this. That's two very different perspectives on death. And consequently, that's two very different perspectives on life. Because on the one hand, you've got a man saying, death is the end of me. All there is to my existence is life on this earth. So anything worth enjoying, anything worth experiencing has to happen now. And on the other hand, you've got a woman saying, for those of us that are in Christ, all of this is actually leading up to something more, something better. There's so much more to our existence than the here and now. There were a lot of people in the church in Corinth that pretty much sided with the, the man in London, hold a real similar view. They believed that Jesus had been raised from the dead, but nobody else would be. And so they agreed that this life was it for them. And it was really affecting the way that they lived. And so Paul wrote this part of the letter to them to convince them of the reality of a future resurrection and also then to convince them to live in a way that's consistent with that reality. And so that's what he says in verse 12. He says, no, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. He says, here's the thing. It's a package deal. If the dead aren't raised, Christ hadn't been either. But if Christ has been, we will be too. These things go together. They're inseparable. You can't have one without the other. And so according to the Corinthian view, the dead aren't raised, which means Christ hasn't been raised. And if Christ hadn't been raised, Paul says, we got some serious problems. The whole thing just falls apart. Because what you're left with is a bunch of people that just exist for a relatively short amount of time. And they spend that short time worshiping and obeying a dead man. One of the obvious problems with that is that the faith of the Corinthians is in vain. Apparently, some of them had started to trust Jesus. But why, if he's still dead? 
a dead man can't do anything for you. And if there's no future resurrection, that means there's no future judgment, there's no future reward, there's no eternal consequence to anything. So if this life is all there is, do we really need a Savior for anything? I mean, the whole Christian faith stands or falls on the reality of the resurrection of Christ. And so Paul's conclusion makes a lot of sense when he says, if Christ hadn't been raised and we won't be either, then we're to be pitied more than all men. Why? Because we've lived our whole lives based on a lie. We've lived for more when there's nothing more to be had. My wife and I were engaged for about a year before we got married, which some of you know that's a long year when you're looking forward to a marriage. But it's an important time because you've got to do a whole lot of planning. And we spent a whole year having conversations and making plans um, about all kinds of things, about the ceremony itself and um, you know, who would be in it and where we'd have it and what we'd eat at different times, all those different things. And then, and then also, of course, for after the ceremony, we got to look at where we're going to live you know, when we get back, where we're going to go for a honeymoon, all those sorts of things. All kinds of plans, conversations, time went into this, money went into this for a whole year. But all those plans depended on one very specific thing. And that was whether Cassie would show up on May 20th and say, I do. Because if any time uh, during that year she had realized what the rest of us already knew, which was that she could do a little better, and she had decided, <laughs> I'm out, she doesn't show up and say, I do, well, then what happens to all those plans? What happens to all that time? It's suddenly a complete waste. I mean, it's not just a healthy exercise to plan a wedding anyway, and if the wedding doesn't happen, oh, well, I mean, at least you planned a wedding for a year. (laughs) It's suddenly a total waste of time, a waste of money, a waste of energy. No, if she did show up and say, I do, we'll get this fixed in a minute. If she did show up and say, I do, which, of course, she did, well, then it's more than worth it. Maybe we won't get this fixed. We'll go with this. If she shows up and says, I do, then it's more than worth it. Whatever the cost, whatever the time, so worth it. That's what Paul's saying to the Corinthians here. He says, look, guys, if this future resurrection doesn't happen, then this is all pointless. Doing the Christian life isn't just a healthy exercise anyway. And if it doesn't work out, oh well, it was a good way to live. But here's the thing. During that whole year-long engagement, I was very confident Cassie would show up and say, I do. And not because of anything about me. Actually, in spite of me. I was very confident because she had already promised me that she would. We made sure of that before we moved forward. And so in a sense, yeah, this all depends on this, all depends on this future event. But that really depends on something that's already happened in the past. And the same thing is true with the resurrection. That yes, in a sense, for for us, all of this depends on whether we'll be raised or not in the future. But that's determined by whether Christ has already been raised. And so that's what Paul says next, look at verse 20. He says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So yeah, everything he says up to that point is true, but it's all hypothetical. Because the reality is Christ has been raised. And if you go back to verses 5 to 8, Paul says that the risen Christ appeared to Peter and to the 12 and then to more than 500 and then to James and then to Paul himself. So basically he says, yeah, if the dead aren't raised, Christ hadn't been either. But the risen Christ has appeared to well over 500 of us. So he's been raised. And if he's been raised, we will be too. And that's what he's getting at here in verse 20 when he refers to Christ as the first fruits. See, if there's a first fruits, 
And there has to be a rest of the harvest. Uh, by definition, there, there has to be more to come. So when he says that Christ is the first fruits, he's affirming that Christ has been raised. But he's saying not only that, there's more to come. There's a rest of the harvest. There's going to be more people participating in this resurrection. But he's also clear that that doesn't all happen at the same time. Christ has been raised a long time ago in the past. Our resurrection is a future thing. We haven't experienced it yet. That's going to happen around the time that Christ returns and hands the kingdom over to the Father and defeats every enemy in a final sense. That's when we're going to be raised. We're looking forward to it. But the fact that it's future doesn't make all that irrelevant for us today. In fact, Paul's whole point here is that it's incredibly relevant, incredibly significant for us now. And not even just as a source of hope. It's certainly that. We look to the resurrection and we know things are going to get better. But it also provides us with a source of ethics, a source of value, even now. When I was growing up, I played a lot of basketball, and I was um, intensely competitive. We could probably say sinfully competitive. Um, I'm not proud of that. I'm just saying it's true. And just, I didn't just like to win. I mean, I like to win big. I like to embarrass people kind of thing. It didn't always happen, but I really liked it when it did. But I remember this one game we played in. And the other team, was, they were just bad. I mean, they were just bad at basketball. There's no other way to say it. And our team jumped out to this early lead, this big lead. And by halftime, I mean, the game was really over. Of course, we still had to play the second half, but, you know, the game was over. And during halftime, I found this really odd thing happening. I found myself actually feeling bad for the other team. And it got so extreme that I went and found the two little point guards on the other team, and I pulled them off to the side, and I started giving them some tips. I explained to them what a bounce pass is. I explained to them what a ball fake is, just little things like that. And even with that, they were still bad. And so throughout the second half, I mean, there were times I could steal the ball, and I just wouldn't. I thought, we'll just let them pass it around. There were times I'd have a wide-open shot. I just wouldn't take it. We'll let them set up the defense. I found myself having a whole new approach to the game. <laughs> Very different mindset, different goals, different values, really, within the game. Why? Why that sudden change? Because the outcome had been determined. Yeah, I mean, there was still time on the clock. We started to play the rest of the game. But see, once the outcome was determined, well, that freed me up to play a whole different kind of game. And that's exactly where we find ourselves in salvation history. We find ourselves between these two resurrections where there's still time on the clock. I mean, history's still playing out. God is still doing things. It's not over. And yet we look back to the resurrection of Christ and we know how it ends. We know we're going to live. We know death won't have the final word for us. We know that his resurrection secures for us our own. And that frees us up to live a whole different kind of life. To have different values, different dreams, a different vision for our lives, for our families, for our ministries. Because of this future reality. Paul says something real similar in Romans 6 when he says that we will be united with Christ in a resurrection like his. It's future. But his whole point in saying that is to bring out the immediate implications of it. When he says we can walk in the newness of life now. We can consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God now. We can offer our faculties to God as weapons of righteousness now. It's a future event, but incredibly significant for how you and I live our lives right now. And Paul gets to some of those implications in his own life and for the life of the Corinthians and by extension for me and you. In verse 29, he gets to one of those implications that's I mean, it's just odd. He starts talking about being baptized on behalf of the dead. 
Apparently, it's something that doesn't make any sense if the dead aren't raised. Beyond that, most people agree that we don't really know what he's talking about. So I'm not going to say much about it because I don't know much about it. But fortunately, after that, he gets to some stuff that does make some sense. In verse 30, he says, Why am I in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead aren't raised, well, let's eat and drink. For tomorrow we die. Paul just lays it out there for us and tells us how much he's suffering, how much he's being persecuted. He says he's facing death every single day, and he's willing to die. He's fighting with wild beasts at Ephesus. Most likely it's not a literal thing, but apparently he's being persecuted, being oppressed in some way. In fact, most people think Paul wrote this letter from Ephesus while he's in the middle of the pain, in the middle of the persecution, and yet his point is clear. He's saying, yeah, I'm facing some stuff. I'm going through some stuff, and it's hard, and it's worth it. It's worth every bit of it. Because Paul knew there was more to his existence than the here and now. We see the same idea in 2 Corinthians 4 when Paul tells us that he's been afflicted in every way and been persecuted and struck down and handed over to death. And he goes on a few verses later to say that those slight momentary afflictions were preparing him for an eternal weight of glory. He's viewing his present in light of the eternal. Now that only works if what he says at the end of Romans 8 is true. When he reminds us that Christ has been raised and is interceding for us, and therefore nothing, not persecution, not famine, not danger, not life, not even death, can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And when we get to that point where we are convinced that death will not have the final word for us, and therefore cannot separate us from the love of God, that changes everything. We get a glimpse of that in the life of Abraham when it's looking like he, he's called to sacrifice his own son. We find out in Hebrews eleven nineteen that he was willing to do it because he believed that God could raise the dead. So here we got Abraham willing to kill his own son. We've got Paul willing to die every day, both because they believed that their God was greater than death. You know, I really hope that none of us ever feel led to sacrifice our children. And most likely, none of us will ever face the kind of persecution for the gospel that Paul faced. Some of us might. But yeah, we've all been called to persevere. We've all been called to labor. We've all been called to radical obedience and faithfulness in the middle of suffering, in the middle of pain. When it's looking like God doesn't know what he's doing. I mean, most of us in this room have been called to some form of ministry. We know going into it, it's going to be hard. It's going to be frustrating at times. It's going to be discouraging and challenging because we know what people are like. And yet here we are working like crazy for years to get into that. If this life is all there is, we've made a terrible mistake. It's a bad career move. Fortunately, life isn't always that hard. Ministry is not always that hard. But sometimes it is. And when it is, we're encouraged by 1 Corinthians 15. And we're reminded that, hey, it's worth it. It's going to get hard. But it's worth it. 
in the, in the big picture, which is bigger than we can fathom. So worth it. The reward, the payoff, it's going to blow our minds. Because there's more to our existence than the here and now. Now, once again in this passage, Paul reminds us that if the dead aren't raised, none of that's true. We should walk away from any sacrifice, any suffering. And we should just join the world. We should go ahead and eat and drink for tomorrow we die. It's an understandable mindset. I think it's actually the right mindset if this life is all there is. I think it's a pretty good description of how the Corinthians were living in a lot of ways. You read the rest of this letter. I mean, there was sexual immorality the pagans wouldn't tolerate in that church. Pride issues, lawsuits, abuse of the Lord's Supper. And all of that makes sense if they really believed that this life was it for them. What does it matter? There's no eternal consequence for anything. Do what you want to do. And so that's why I said earlier, I think Paul's writing this in large part to correct their doctrine. That's leading to some really sinful behavior. See, our situation's a little different. Because I think most of us have a pretty right understanding of this. Our doctrine is pretty okay. We may not understand a lot about the resurrection, but I think most of us believe in it. We believe in eternal life and all that. Our problem is that too often we live like we don't. And we've been invited to this eternal banquet with the King of Kings, and so often we act like that's never going to happen. And so we just join the world and chasing after these temporary lesser joys, these lesser pleasures. That's what Paul's getting at when he says, let's eat and drink for tomorrow we die. He's not saying, you know, all pleasure is bad. And I don't want to give the impression that if something's good or enjoyable, it must be sinful. It's not what Paul means. In fact, Jesus said in John 15 that he gave his command so that our joy could be complete. He wants us to have more joy, not less. Now, our problem is that when we only live for the here and now, we're settling. We're settling for a lesser temporary joy. And we do it over and over because it's immediate. And sometimes holding out for something better in the future just seems way too hard and not worth it. That's why C.S. Lewis said that God finds our desires not too strong, but far too weak. He said, here we are going about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who goes on making mud pies in the slum. Because he doesn't understand what's meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We're far too easily pleased. Fortunately, the resurrection takes our focus off of the here and now. And turns our gaze heavenward. And so the world goes on saying, yeah, let's eat and drink. For tomorrow we die. You and I look to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we say, well, let's go ahead and take up a cross and die now. For tomorrow we live. Let's go ahead and consider others more important than ourselves now. Let's go ahead and give. Let's sacrifice. Let's labor. Let's persevere. Let's lose our lives for the sake of Christ and the gospel. For tomorrow, we live. Jim Elliot was well known for his statement, He is no fool who gives what he can't keep to gain what he can't lose. For Elliot and his friends, that meant losing their lives in an attempt to take the gospel to the Alca people of Ecuador. And by any human standards, that was a tragedy. And yet God used that tragedy to draw the Alca people to himself and to transform them. And we're going to join them around the throne for the rest of eternity. So without a resurrection, though, Jim Elliot's a fool for giving his life for a cause like that. 
But since there is, Jim Elliott gave what he couldn't keep anyway to gain what can't be lost. See, that's a resurrected life, even before the resurrection. Martin Luther, of course, well-known for the Protestant Reformation and other things, not quite as well-known for losing a 14-year-old daughter to the plague. But she died, and when the carpenters were nailing her coffin shut, Martin Luther looked at them, and he said, you go ahead and hammer away, because on doomsday, she'll rise again. No doubt there was pain in that for him. And yet he was convinced that death would not have the final word for him or for his daughter. And so he pressed on in the service of his Lord. When Beeson graduates leave everything that's comfortable and familiar and move to Malaysia or Burma or Venezuela and learn a new language and a new culture for the sake of the gospel... When a pastor plants in a medium-sized church and passes up the bigger church and the bigger salary because he's convinced he is where God wants him to be. See, those are resurrected lives. When our spouses go to jobs, they may find less than ideal, but do their best to evangelize their co-workers, and they make money to put me and you through Beeson. Those are resurrected lives. Why? Because they're about so much more than the here and now. When you and I are truly convinced that to live is Christ, but to die is gain. When you and I, in the middle of the pain and through the tears, can stare the last enemy in the face and say, Hey, death, where's your victory? Hey, death, where's your sting? Then by the power of the same Spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead, you and I will be living resurrected lives even before we're resurrected. And so we press on. We persevere. We labor. We sacrifice. We lose everything because we know that Jesus is coming back. And when he does, the dead in Christ are going to be raised. And we're going to be clothed with immortality. And God's going to wipe away every tear. And death shall be no more. Thanks be to our great God who gives us that kind of victory through our Lord, Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast. <laughs>